Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm back after two months. This is the People's Medicine Show. Let's start the show with a song Woody Guthrie wrote and is being stylized by Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. This land is your land.
Okay, let's get on with the show. So I picked uh, a theme for this month, and that theme would be the power of ritual. And I suppose ritual at one time I was always um, associating with religion or some kind of spiritual um, type of practice. But I suppose ritual would just be a set procedure that's followed over and over and over again. And it frees up um, a lot of our other parts of ourselves to um, not to stop thinking and to be free in other areas. So one of my favorite um, um, books on tape that I have on my phone is called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And I always enjoy this uh, opening of his book. And this is just how he begins the book. And his book is basically how to uh, dedicate yourself to a creative endeavor and to meet resistance and to push through and work no matter what resistance comes our way. So I suppose I, I meet a lot of resistance doing this show. I wanted to do a two-hour radio show once a month. And for the past two months, I was like, I don't want to do it. <laughs> so I guess one of my goals is to always have fun. So that is my intention, to, to have fun doing this. So I suppose... Um, I think as far as creating an environment where we're going to have fun doing what we want to do could be part of a ritual. So I'm going to play Stephen Pressfield's opening of his book, The War of Art, and this is how he sits down every day to write for four hours. He's a professional novelist, and he wrote for 25 years straight, I think, believe daily, for four hours a day before... Uh, one of his published books um, became a bestseller. So this is Stephen Pressfield describing his daily writing ritual. What I do. I get up, take a shower, have breakfast. I read the paper, brush my teeth. If I have phone calls to make, I make them. I've got my coffee now. I put on my lucky work boots and stitch up the lucky laces that my niece Meredith gave me. I head back to my office, crank up the computer. My lucky hooded sweatshirt is draped over the chair with the lucky charm I got from a gypsy in Sainte-Marie-de-la-Mer for only eight bucks and francs, and my lucky Largo name tag that came from a dream I once had. I put it on. On my thesaurus is my lucky cannon that my friend Bob Versandi gave me from Moro Castle, Cuba. I point it toward my chair so it can fire inspiration into me. I say my prayer, which is the invocation of the muse from Homer's Odyssey, translation by T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, which my dear mate Paul Rink gave me and which sits near my shelf with the cufflinks that belonged to my father and my lucky acorn from the battlefield at Thermopylae. It's about 10.30 now. I sit down and plunge in. When I start making typos, I know I'm getting tired. That's four hours or so. I've hit the point of diminishing returns. I wrap for the day, copy whatever I've done to disk, and stash the disk in the glove compartment of my truck in case there's a fire and I have to run for it. I power down. It's 3, 3.30. The office is closed. How many pages have I produced? I don't care. Are they any good? I don't even think about it. All that matters is I've put in my time and hit it with all I've got. 
All that counts is that for this day, for this session, I have overcome resistance. So that clip is on my phone, and when I plug it into my car, it often will come on, and it's, it, every time I listen to it, I always hear something else. So this last time I heard him say, I put on my shoes, and I laced them up with my lucky shoelaces. And I've heard that often many, many times, that if you want to work, put on your shoes, um, set the stage, and that is part of his ritual, put on my shoes and lace them up with my lucky laces that my niece gave me. And I've heard other people um, use um, footwear as sort of, okay, it's time to work. Um, it, it reminds me sort of um, of the Mr. Rogers show where he would come in every day, take off his sport jacket and then put on his uh, happy sweater and take off his, um, his shoes and put on his sneakers and he would begin the show. So, these are things I'm all contemplating lately, like what rituals can I build into my life to, that would um, sort of put me on autopilot on, on these creative endeavors that I love. I love gardening. I love doing this show. I want to um, teach classes, so I have to um, prepare some classes to teach people. So um, that <laughs> I'm trying not to say, oh, my friends and Toastmasters, when I go to Toastmasters Day and ask me to go up and speak in front of the room, at the end of the night, they'll, they'll say, hey, you said um and ah this many times, and sometimes it's like 30 or 40 times, and it's been so helpful because I'm saying um and ah a lot less. And the answer to not saying um and ah is just to pause. People won't lose track with a five-second, ten-second pause. Pauses are helpful to be able to connect our thoughts to what we want to say. I put up on the Facebook, on my Facebook page, uh, that I picked a few things to talk about. I'm really been into powdered herbs lately. I went to the International Herbal Symposium at the beginning of June, and there was a company there called Real Mushrooms who was, uh, they were marketing, and I suppose it's um. These um, mushrooms, that uh, medicinal mushrooms, I think they have chaga, uh, reishi, lion's mane, maitake, shiitake, and they're all in powder form. And some of these companies, they're really doing amazing things now with the powders because they're using like freeze-drying techniques and nitrogen packing. And uh, it, it's wonderful how uh, the herbal industry is improving and people that uh, market herbal products are, are more, they, they have a demanding audience that demands things that are really high quality. So I, I'm trying this new brand of mushrooms. I, the other brand of lion's mane that I've used is called, and what was wonderful was I was at this conference and they, and I asked them, I was like, what's, the, what's your lion's mane all about? And they're like, oh, we'd love to. Um, so I was comped probably a $20 or $30 bag of these lion's mane mushroom powder. Um, that's one of my things on on my agenda to play with this new brand of Lion's Mane. I've used uh, the Paul Stamets um, Host Defense brand. I find it rather um, bland. And um, there's another uh, brand that I've used of Lion's Mane powder called Tia Veli, which is actually the first one that I think I ever tried. 
And um, that, that's the one that I've used the most, and I've actually repurchased it. So that is probably the brand to be, you know, so that is my journey with Lion Green Mushroom. And I've stopped using it for several weeks. And there's research that says that they've tested people that have used Lion's Green Mushrooms and their IQ, attention span, all their mental abilities are increased. And within maybe two weeks of using them daily and um, eating them, consuming them daily, I don't know if we use mushrooms. Do we use food? I, I love that when Susan Lee corrects people who call her in and say, do you take food or do you use food? You eat food. And lion's mane is one of my daily foods that I like to eat. And I was traveling for a few weeks, and I wasn't eating my lion's mane mushrooms every day. And it felt like all the... Uh, stress of traveling combined, <laughs> and my brain just went to absolute um, mush, and I was, you know, kind of like a fog, and like, wow. So that is sort of um, the flowers, I was calling it the flowers for Algonon like type of scenario, where I, I felt like I was worse off than before I even started eating lines <laughs> in the beginning, but I think what it is, too, is once you've flown first class and you felt that type of comfort, you can never go back to coach. And I, my friend, the chiropractor, gave me that analogy the other day. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I haven't gotten used to first class yet. And um, so flying, I found um, I was all out of St. John's Wort tincture, and I was using CBD oil. And I... Uh, I took a nine-and-a-half-hour flight all the way from JFK Airport to Honolulu Airport, and I took a lot of um, CBD oil, and I took it to the point where it, I don't know if it was sedative in nature, but it really made me feel very relaxed, and I had a horrible seat. It was uh, right in the middle of the um, aisle, so I was sort of like sitting on the hump. I um, held it together. And it felt so good to get to get out of that airport and to just walk, 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 and um, before I got on my little 20-minute flight back here to the Big Island. So what else is going on? I've um, been shopping for a water collection tank, and it looks like I'm going to probably buy someone's used tank, or maybe I'll purchase a water tank that's brand new. So I'm doing that type of research. If you have any information about water tanks and living in Hawaii, uh, please uh, communicate with me. My name is Sean, S-E-A-N, Mernin, M-U-R-N-I-N. I'm on Facebook. Uh, the email address that I set up for this show is peoplesmedicineshow at gmail.com. So if you want to communicate through Facebook or my email, please do. I'm really... Uh, in the research phase. And I, I think I want to make a decision probably by the end of December what kind of water tank I want to install on this little piece of land that I purchased. So uh, the other thing, so other uh, powdered herbs have been wonderful is I had this um, ulceration on my ass cheek and it was sort of like a HPV board. I don't know what the hell it was, but I was using a lot of um, oak bark powder 
and I would use maybe a coffee scoop of it and sit in a sitz bath. And a sitz bath would be just uh, you get a dish drainer and you fill it with boiling water. So I think it would be yeah, dish drainer size. You can use a larger something where you can sit comfortably. And you probably add maybe one, two quarts of water. And then I was using a, a coffee scoop size of this uh, oak bark powder, and it gave me so much relief. Relief. So I called into Susan Reed to ask her about this uh, this deep medicine her, that I consented to, and I learned a lot about um, that doctors really are going to do what's easy for them and what makes them least likely to be sued. So there is a, a trend in this, in this country and probably around the world that um, doctors are obligated to offer the maximum over-treatment of anything that people come to them for. And if they don't offer you the maximum treatment, you can come back and say, well, you undertreated me and you are guilty of malpractice. So I learned a valuable lesson that if you wish to be undertreated, all right, please just use the infrared thing to burn off this one wart. That's what I needed to do is uh, propose that to the doctor and said, listen, I'll sign a waiver if you undertreat me for this condition. And then it's ultimately my decision on uh, doctors um, cannot force you to do anything you don't want to. So I, I believe what the treatment that I had done was called IRC, infrared. Oh, darn, I wish I wrote it down. And um, I, I do believe it, did. it relieved a lot of the suffering that I was dealing with. And it was one of those deals where I was taking these oak bark sitz baths every few weeks, and it would, it would give me temporary relief. And I was like, let me try to step it up. That is where I'm at with my personal health and being 51 years old and meeting the challenges of getting older and having a body that's uh, starting to <laughs> hurt a little bit more and give, perhaps give me a few, a few little bit more of things that are happening. <laughs> so, so what other uh, – so, yeah, so that – so I think I was talking about um, powdered herbs uh, two months ago when I was doing this show. So another powdered herb that I use a lot is astragalus powder. And um, I love it. I drink astragalus probably almost every day. And I drink it in tea form, so I don't really take capsules. So it was, um, I had a, a coupon for some astragalus uh, concentrate. And it came in capsules. So I pulled the, all the capsules apart. And then I have like a little four-ounce bottle of this powder. And it's, it's very interesting because I think this is the first time I've actually used organic astragalus extract. And it says four to one. So it, it's um, pretty strong. Like I usually just drink maybe two, three ounces of tea. And... Um, if I'm not careful, uh, if I add too much, the astragalus will actually have um, sort of a bitter, acrid taste where it's supposed to have a sweet, starchy taste. So I encourage everyone to play with astragalus, um, buy different kinds, and um, taste them all. Um, meet with other herbalists and 
um, have them make you their version of Astragalus. That's how I learned first about Astragalus. Someone offered me some of the Astragalus tea they make. And they make it just from the whole uh, Astragalus root, and they um, make it sort of like an infusion where you can um, fill it, you know, weigh an ounce or two ounces out, put it in a quart canning jar, cover that with hot boiling water, put a canning lid on top of it, let it sit for five, six, seven, eight hours overnight, and then drain it the next day, and you'll have like a really potent uh, root tea. So I, um, what other things, oh yeah, so this is the other thing. So it's, it's going right into how do we keep these infusions fresh? And I find that if you could put the infusion in a jar without any air in the jar, that is the absolute um, best way to um, transport, uh, keep infusions with you. And the other thing that I like is I prefer cold drinks. So I'll um, probably take a glass of the infusion when I make a quart of infusion. And then whatever's um, air left in the jar, I fill up the jar completely right to the very top where the lid is with ice cubes. And that will keep uh, infusing sort of like comfrey or stinging nettles or even oat straw from being too much in contact with air because that's basically what gives uh, bacteria and the spoilage any chance is, it, is when liquids, the surface of the liquid has air on it. So, and just keeping it as cold as you can will also preserve the flavor. And I've, I've spoken to several people, and they're like, yeah, I forget that I drank. I forgot I made an infusion. I drank it three days later, and it tasted fine. And I think that really is the, the key, though, is make sure you're filling um, the, the jar or the thermos or whatever you are right up to the very top so there's not a lot of air um, touching your liquids. So I think I'm going to take a, a short break and gather, and then I'll come back and I'll, I'll read some of these bookmarks that I've saved uh, over, this, oh, over the past few weeks that I've been, and I'll, let me just take a break. I'll be back soon.
Okay, I'm back. So I suppose I have to listen to the recording of the show to be able to tell if I, when I hit the pause button, whether the time that I stop talking and hit the pause button is recorded or not, or whether it just goes to a quick jump cut. So the next thing I'd love to report on is my journey with psilocybin mushrooms. So last year in 2018, I met with other people that experienced um, like seasonal headaches in the spring and the fall. And I actually went to the World Cluster Headache Conference. And there were people there that were discussing some uh, psilocybin cubensis spores from a number of companies that sell them for microscopy purposes only for scientific reasons they sell these mushroom spores. They're not intended to be um, uh, you know, used as a, a controlled substance. There's you know, some, these people are just self-treating themselves by growing their own psilocybin mushrooms and, and eating them maybe two, three, four times a year. Perhaps in the beginning of the spring, in the beginning of the fall, when they would be most prone to getting on these seasonal type of migraine-type headaches. So I began last year, and on Halloween, I was able to um, eat a small amount that I was able to grow. I think I, I used a technique to cultivate them called PF Tech. P-E-K, P-F Tech, and I used half pint canning jars, and it's basically you measure out two cups of vermiculite, which is a gardening amendment, which is some minerals, and um, you, then you add um, one cup of water to the two cups of vermiculite, and you get the you get the vermiculite very soggy to the point where you could squeeze it, it'll actually, they call it field capacity in mushroom cultivation um, circles. So you want to get your vermiculite in water, the two cups of vermiculite, the one cup of water, you mix it very thoroughly, and then you take one cup of brown rice flour. So I've been playing around. I bought store-bought like Bob's Red Mill, um, brown rice flour, and then I made my own brown rice flour from brown rice and a coffee grinder. And it seems you get completely different results depending on what type of brown rice flour you, you make. So, so let, let me just back it up. So you have your two cups of vermiculite, your one cup of water in your bowl, and then you want to just really dust the one cup of brown rice flour over the, vermicul the, the moistened vermiculite, and you sort of want to coat it. So you want to just keep mixing the vermiculite as you sprinkle the brown rice flour. So you just want to try to get that brown rice flour coated on every piece of the vermiculite. You don't want it to be all clumped up. And then you put this into the half-pint jars. You take plain vermiculite and you put it over the, um, you leave about one inch after you put this combination of brown rice, vermiculite, and water into the jars. You leave about one inch gap from the top of the jar. And then with that one inch gap, you put plain vermiculite up in a, in a single layer. So you put another one inch layer of 
plain vermiculite. You, you poke four holes into the canning jar lid. You put the uh, canning jar ring over the lid. You cut a small piece of aluminum foil and you put it on top of the can and then you either boil it for 90 minutes or put it into a pressure cooker for 90 minutes. So the pressure cooker I have is called Instant Pot and it only reaches 12 pounds per square inch. And within, um, you know, common knowledge uh, to be able to do a proper sterilization when you're cultivating mushrooms, you need a pressure cooker that goes to a minimum of 15 pounds per square inch. So I've noticed that I've gotten high degrees of contamination with my jars. Even before I'm able to inoculate them with spores, they'll be growing other things. From what I've been told that oftentimes this, there are what's called endospores in the brown rice that actually take, so you'll, I'll boil it for maybe 90 minutes and um, within a few days, the spores will actually bloom even after being able to be boiled for that long. So perhaps I just wasn't boiling it enough or that is just my theory and just my guess at this point, like why I was ex experiencing a lot of um, uh, contamination. Perhaps the spore syringe that I ordered was contaminated also. And so there is no real um, standards and 100%ness with mushroom cultivation. It's just sort of mysterious because if the mushrooms don't want to grow, they won't grow. So some people are really lucky, and I've been really lucky lately. So I'm working on my third time of um, doing this PF tech technique, and the second time was absolutely wonderful. Uh, after five weeks, I inoculated my jars, and after five weeks, I put the jars into like a, a clear Tupperware box and um, just misted the insides of the box and tried to maintain a very high humidity inside the box. A few times a day, I was told to take the lid off the box. And uh, so these would be called, I guess, sterilite. So the box that I'm using is maybe five gallons. So you take the lid off the box and you fan you, and you get some air exchange going. So, so I've um, actually fruited mushrooms three times now from the same jar cakes that I've inoculated in and incubated. And then the terminology too is when you remove this brown rice vermiculite from the jar, it becomes uh, a cake. <laughs> and that's the other terminology in mushroom cultivation you know, is your PF tech cake. And that's what goes into the fruiting chamber. A lot of people will use like, they call it a casing, which is a mixture of like peat moss and water. But I just um, put the cakes bare into the jar. Um, I've also experimented with, after taking the cake out of um, the jar, I've um, put it into cold water for like 12 hours and um, then coated it with another fresh coat of vermiculite. And that's called dunking and rolling. So there's a lot of these different uh, mushroom cultivation forms that I've learned a lot of this stuff from. One is called shroomery.org. 
And then the other one I think it's called Myco Web or something like that. But if you just throw it into Google, you know, um, PS Tech, uh, psilocybin cubensis cultivation. So I'm really excited that it's being recognized as being very medicinal. It's kind of addiction-proof because if you eat too many psilocybin mushrooms, you never want to eat them ever again in your entire life because you'll um, – some people have uh, vomited from eating too many or sometimes you will have an existential crisis where you think you're going to die. <laughs> so psychedelics should be approached with a lot of respect and um, just you're better off um, underdosing yourself. So the first time I tried psilocybin mushrooms, I hadn't eaten them in maybe five or six years, so I took less than one gram. That was fine. That was perfect. And since then, I've maybe increased it to two or three grams, and it's so far so good. But I, I have, back in the 90s, uh, I used to grow mushrooms that were just from a pre-made kit, and I, um, oh, no, no, it was the azurescence that came from the Pacific Northwest. And I've learned recently that a lot of people that have had bad reactions from the azurescence, it's because there are these bacteria that will grow on those mushrooms. So you have to be careful if there are some black spots on the mushrooms, if you're picking them in the wild, because they can really make you sick. So. I've really come up with a lot of explanations why I've had very <laughs> bad experiences with mushrooms in the past, and most of the time it's just eating way too many or probably eating one that was contaminated with bacteria. That is what I'm learning about psilocybin mushrooms lately. I just wanted to bring it out there. I put some, I put some pictures up on my Instagram, and my Instagram is called um, Big Island Botanica. So on Instagram.com backslash Big Island Botanica if you want to look at my psilocybin pictures. So I'm going to read some of these really cool um, web pages that I've uh, been coming across. And this one is really interesting. And I'm not really sure of what climate change is or global warming or anything, but the, the world, if you're paying attention to the world around us, it is speaking to us that it's going through something, and I'm not sure what it is. I'm not going to name it, but this, this article is a pretty good description of what kind of changes the world is going through. So it's from National Geographic, a February issue, and the title is Why Insect Populations Are Plummeting and Why It Matters. A new, a new study suggests that 40% of insect species are in decline, a sobering finding that has jarred researchers worldwide. Rocky Mountain locusts once gathered in such large numbers that they blotted out the sun over the Great Plains, rivaling the famous bison herds in size and appetite. In the summer of 1875, for example, a swarm of around 10 billion locusts took nearly a week to pass through Plattsmouth, Nebraska. But in the following decades, ranchers and homesteaders developed special areas of the prairie where they bred. Only 27 years later, the last living specimens 
were collected on the Canadian prairie. They went, ex they went extinct shortly thereafter, dealing a blow to the ecosystem as they provided food for countless insectivores. <clears throat> New research shows that large-scale declines in insects, while perhaps less dramatic, are by no means a thing of the past, and that insects may be more vulnerable than we thought. A study published recently in the Journal of Biological Conservation made headlines for suggesting that 40% of all insect species are in decline and could die out in the coming decades. Why it matters. There is reason to worry, says lead author Francisco Sanchez Bayo, a researcher at the University of Sydney in Australia. If we don't stop it, entire ecosystems will collapse due to starvation. The paper, the first global research, the, the first global survey of research on insect populations around the world singles out a few groups of critters that are particularly threatened. Moths and butterflies, pollinators like bees and dung beetles, along with other insects that help decompose feces and detritus. The following study, the, the study follows several high-profile papers on insect declines that shock even experts in the field. In October 2017, a group of European researchers found that insect abundance had declined by more than 75% within 63 protected areas in Germany over the course of just 27 years. A year later, two researchers published a paper in the preceding of the National Academy of Sciences, suggesting that within a relatively pristine rainforest in Puerto Rico, the biomass of insects and other arthropods like spiders had fallen between 10 and 60 fold since the 1970s. Most of the relevant data comes from Europe and to a lesser extent the United States, but the rest of the world remains woefully understudied, says David Wagner, an ecologist at the University of Connecticut, who wasn't involved in the paper. The study found that half of the moth and butterfly species studied are in decline, with one-third threatened with extinction, and the numbers for beetles are almost exactly the same. Meanwhile, nearly half of surveyed bees and ants are threatened. Caddisflies are among the worst off. 63% of the species are threatened likely due in part to the fact that they lay their eggs in water, which makes them more vulnerable to pollution and development. Why the decline? There are a number of reasons why these animals are in trouble, and there's no single smoking gun, Wagner says. I'm afraid the answer is that it's death by a thousand cuts. Factors behind the decline include perhaps foremost among them habitat changes wrought by humans, such as deforestation and conversion of natural habitats for agriculture. In Europe and North America, the decline of small family farms known for open pastures, hedgerows, and other areas where weedy plants like wildflowers can grow, areas that are perfect for insects, has certainly played a part. Wagner adds and has the draining of wetlands and swamps. Along the agriculture comes the use of chemicals like herbicides, fungicides, and pesticides. Insecticides, unsurprisingly, hurt non-target species, and neonicotinoids have been implicated in the worldwide decline of bees. 
Pesticides may play a role in one-eighth of the species declines featured in the study. Climate change undoubtedly plays a big role as well, especially extremes of weather such as droughts, which are likely to increase in intensity, duration, and frequency in the future. Wagner says other studies, uh, Wagner says, other studies include invasive species, parasites, and diseases. The impact of decline. Insects serve as the base of the food web, eaten by everything from birds to small mammals to fish. If they decline, everything else will as well, Sancho's bio explains. They also provide invaluable services to humanity, including plant pollination, says John Luzzi, an entomologist at Cornell University. About three-fourths of all flowering plants are pollinated by insects, as well as the crops that produce more than one-third of the world's food supply. No insects equals no food, which equals no people, says Dino Martins, an entomologist at Kenya's Mapala Research Center and a National Geographic Explorer. Another service, waste disposal and nutrient recycling. Without insects, like dung beetles and decomposers breaking down and removing animal and plant waste, the result would be unpleasant, says Timothy Showalter, an entomologist at Louisiana State University. So just how dire is the situation for insects? Ultimately, while it's concerning, we don't really have the information yet to, to answer that question, Wagner says. That's mainly due to the lack of long-term studies. But insect abundance is also tough to study. Many of these animals have boom or bust life cycles, which can take advantage of prime conditions to explode. However, they're also highly sensitive to fluctuations in weather. One definite result of recent studies is increased interest in funding for long-term research. Wagner says such in Tension could help prevent extinctions like the loss of the Rocky Mountain locust. Even insects that, that can seem very abundant can disappear over a short period of time, Walter says. But unless somebody is watching or concerned, nobody will prevent that. It's interesting, I've heard of the, the russet mite infecting a lot of the new marijuana plantations that are um, bring, uh, springing up throughout the, the west part of the United States. And I believe the russet mite would be the same mite that attacks uh, uh, tobacco and potato. So I was told it's a very horrible um, plant, uh, plant thing. It's funny, someone just texted me something. <laughs> I wonder who that is. So if you'd like to call into the show, let me repeat the call-in number. The call-in number is 646-929-2463. So, yeah, so the russet mite is has become a real bane to our marijuana farmers. And um, they're, it, it, it sounds like something that has actually increased. So there's probably some pest, this uh, pest insects that are actually increasing with farming, especially people that are shooting for like no spraying and, you know, doing things organically. They may actually um, 
be also farming and creating insects. And these are ideas that I'm exploring that, yeah, um, even though worldwide it seems like insect populations are decreasing, that um, if, uh, you know, just haphazardly planting a bunch of really highly um, nutrient-dense, you know, marijuana, you're going to per perhaps be also growing insects. <laughs> um, I, I do believe, you know, we really should favor insects in the form that they're, most, of that, most insects are beneficial for us and our food supply. And there's a, there's a few of the pests that will totally devastate, the, devastate a food farm or garden. And a lot of people use organic pesticides or chemical pesticides. And there's really, um, these are all things that I'm learning about. So that's my take on insect populations. So, I wonder who's um, texting me. Let me um, pause the show and find out who's texting me. Okay, yeah, I signed up for text alerts, and these smartphones are just horrible because I think I have to turn off these notifications that there's a setting that is persistent. So unless you answer the text, it's just going to keep going ding, ding, ding. <laughs> I have to learn how to set these settings. But in the most part, all these um, interconnectedness is a totally useful tool, and I think it's when we don't have boundaries, we don't rein it in, we don't give ourselves uh, a chance to not um, be interconnected at all times. It is um, just, I'm really, 
I, I went back on Facebook after two months, and I was like, I was already acting horrible, like, within a month. So there's just something within the Facebook thing that um, just gives me a lot of frustration. So I'm going to continue to use it to announce my announce this blog talk show, but I don't know if I really want to be involved with Facebook. I don't know what the problem is because I um, I post pictures on on Instagram all the time and it doesn't give me the indigestion that I seem to be getting um, when I look at Facebook. So I'm, I'm back on like a fast with like, let me try not to look at Facebook where it becomes just a, just a not very useful and just a, a big time suck. So the month of August, I've made a commitment not to play with Facebook, not to look at my email every day, to just check my email twice a week. Unless there's a specific email that I'm expecting, I'm not going to look at my email. I joined a new gardening forum at beanbasement.nl, so I'm going to check in with my gardening blog on Mondays. And that's also my, if you want to look at my gardening blog on that, I'm, I'm using my Instagram handle, which is uh, Big Island Botanica. So that is what I'm up to, though, with trying to just rein back this interconnectedness. There's a, an episode, a recent episode of Back to Work podcast, and I probably should have pulled some clips from it, but they really just nailed something that, if you look at science fiction from the past 100 years, there's a lot of, really a lot of fun scientific stuff, but they all sort of miss it. They really all miss it, what actually happened with us all being, be, having the ability to be interconnected, like where I can have um, text messages, you know, beeping at me at all hours of the day. And some people don't even have a phone. They have um a little thing on their wrist that vibrates every time they get a message or something. So there's this ubiquity, they call it, the ubiquity of just always being connected through this, this web. And it's funny when you look at a, uh, a science fiction movie like The Matrix from just 20 years ago where they, 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 they didn't really even have that concept that we were all going to be connected at, at once. And, it is voluntary. You don't have to participate in the Internet. And um, it's something, again, it's another something that I'm trying to uh, navigate myself through without feeling disturbed and, and bothered. And more often these things are really useful tools. It's so much fun to be able to do research nowadays and to be able to just look at the very latest research right off the bat. And... Um, you know, so the Internet is still my friend, but the channels and just the overdoing of it is not my friend. So it's something that I really want to work out. And perhaps when I come back in September, I'll, I'll have a little bit more of um, a perspective of just being less connected <laughs> with um, the outside world. So I am... Um, Go ahead and read another something that I've been um, looking at. So, all right. Oh, here's a, here's a really cool one. So, yeah, staying with the uh, subject of psychedelics, this was a, a great little um, 
article that Vice Magazine, Vice.com, published in May. And it's called The Fascinating History of Mescaline, the OG Psychedelic. We spoke to writer Mike Jay about the drug's journey from prehistoric caves through Aztecs, Mormons, beat poets, Jean-Paul Sartre, and a British MP. Okay, this was originally published by Vice UK. On mescaline, a natural hallucinogen found in cacti is one of the OG psychedelics. Its use has been tracked back 6,000 years to prehistoric psychonauts tripping in caves near the Rio Grande in Texas. Since then, its powerful effects have been sampled by everyone from Aztecs, Plains Indians, and Mormons to W.B. Gates, Aldo Huxley, and a British MP, who took the drug on camera for a 1955 episode of the BBC's Panorama. I recently spoke to cultural historian Mike Jay, who's just written a definitive history of the drug, Mescaline, a global history of the first psychedelic about humanity's age-old fascination with this kaleidoscope substance. Vice Magazine asks, how long have people been tripping on mescaline? Mike J. The earliest physical evidence of its use are effigies made of dried peyote cactus preserved in the Shumia Caves on the Texas side of the Rio Grande that have been radiocarbon dated to 4000 BCE. There's also evidence around this time for the use of other plant psychoactives, tobacco and coca leaf in the Andes, DMT-containing plants in the Amazon, and opium and cannabis across Europe and Asia, and beer brewing in the Middle East. There's an amazing carving in a very early temple site in Peru, about 1000 BC, of a fang-clawed shaman figure holding a mescaline containing San Pedro cactus. It looks as if this was a pilgrimage site where ceremonies were conducted that involved processions and subterranean passages and probably DMT-containing snuffs and other mind-altering plants as well as San Pedro. The term psychedelic originated in an exchange between Aldo Huxley and the psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond after Huxley's first mescaline trip in 1953. What exactly is mescaline and how is it different from other psychedelics? Mescaline is an alkaloid that occurs in nature in two families of cacti, the San Pedro in the Andes and the peyote in Mexico, and a bit of what's in Texas now. It's a phenethylene, phenethylene <laughs> biosynthesized by the cacti from the amino acid phenylalanine which is also present in foods such as eggs, milk, soybeans, breast milk, and in trace amounts in the human brain. This makes it different from other psychedelics, such as LSD, psilocybin, and DMT, which are tryptamines, derived from a different amino acid, tryptophan. Other mind-altering phenethylamines include amphetamine and MDMA, Mescaline has some effects that are similar to these, though it's also intensely visual and trippy. 
Compared to other psychedelics, it's more physical with an intense body load, a tactile sensation that can be experienced as euphoria or nausea or both. It's slower to cross the blood-brain barrier, so onset time is longer, up to two hours, and it also lasts longer, around 12 hours. What part did the drug play in ancient Mexican culture? When the Spanish arrived in Mexico, they found peyote being traded and used as a sacrament. They noted that the people who used it saw visions, which their priests believed to be the work of the devil, but they also recorded some Nahua, Aztec prayers and songs, which talk about it as a divine plant that takes people to the house of the sun, a world of light and beauty. The Spanish writings describe two different forms of peyote ritual. There's a healing ceremony where a carandero uses it to divine the cause of an illness or curse or to see future events and distant places. Also among the tribes, such as the Huichoy in the north of Mexico where the peyote grows, they witness ceremonies where villagers would eat or drink peyote and dance around a fire all night in a communal trance or frenzy. I was surprised to find out that the Plains Indians took mescaline. Can you tell me more? The Plains Indian peyote ceremony developed when the tribes were taken into forced captivity on the reservations. Before then, it was known only to those who visited the areas of Mexico and southern Texas where it grew, mostly Apache bands such as the Lapan and the Mescalero. But after the Texas-Mexico Railroad opened in 1881, peyote from Texas began to reach Comanche, Kiowa, and Apache reservations in Oklahoma. Following the ghost dance ceremonies in 1890, which were suppressed after the massacre at Wounded Knee, communal singing and dancing was banned on the reservations. Peyote ceremonies took place in teepees, away from the prying eyes of government agents. Participants ate peyote buttons, usually dried while seated all night around a central fire, purified with prayers, tobacco, and incense, and sang songs accompanied by drum and rattle that passed around the group. Songs were channeled during the ceremonies and different traditions and forms of ritual evolved. For men who had been brought up as warriors, the peyote meaning became a microcosm of their vanished world. Peyote worship preserved their culture and identity and nurtured an ethos of self-respect, particularly abstinence from the alcohol that was destroying their societies. How is mescaline mixed with religions such as the Native American church and the Mormons? The Native American ceremony brought peyote to the attention of Western science, and in 1897, its active compound was isolated and named mescaline but it also attracted some who were looking for a spiritual experience. Alistair Crowley used it extensively in his magic practice and obtained a special high-strength peyote extract from the pharmacist Park Davis in Detroit. The president of the Mormon church, Frederick Smith, attended Native American peyote ceremonies in Oklahoma and believed the peculiar, peculiar, peculiar and ecstatic state it produced had wonderful and beneficial effects. He considered introducing it to Mormon worship to generate an ecstatic religious experience. On Indian reservations, peyote was often prohibited and its users harassed and imprisoned. 
1918, the federal government attempted to ban it as a narcotic. To protect themselves, peyote worshipers in Oklahoma incorporated the Native American church to give their sacrament legal status under the First Amendment's freedom of worship. Of all the attempts to construct a religious practice around peyote, this was the one that survived. A century later, it's still thriving. What did scientists make of it in the West? Scientists across the U.S. and Europe were fascinated by peyote, and especially by mescaline once it was synthesized in the laboratory in 1919. It didn't behave predictably like other drugs. Some people had ecstatic experiences, others nightmarish. It was the first example of what we now call a psychedelic, and researchers zeroed in on the visual hallucinations it produced. Dozens of experimental subjects described and recorded their hallucinations, and artists were given mescaline and asked to draw or paint what they were seeing. Psychiatrists noticed that its effects had similarities with the symptoms of psychosis, hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, loss of identity, and speculated that disorders such as schizophrenia might be caused by a mescaline-like toxic chemical in the brain. During the 1950s, it was used widely in clinical research. By, by the 1960s, this psychotomimetic theory had been largely abandoned and mescaline itself was mostly replaced by LSD, which produced the similar effects at a tiny fraction of the dose. Mescaline was used by many culturally important people in the 20th century. Why was this? For the first half of the 20th century, mescaline was the only psychedelic, and people experimented with it from many different perspectives, scientific, artistic, philosophical, spiritual. The spiritual tradition that began with figures like Aleister Crowley and Frederick Smith went mainstream in the 1950s with Aldo Huxley's book on his first mescaline experience, The Doors of Perception, in which he wrote that it revealed the miracle moment by moment of naked existence. In the 1970s, peyote was popularized by Carlos Castaneda, who claimed that his mysterious teacher, Don Juan, had led him through a series of trips to the hidden world of the Nagual, or shaman. Others, though, used mescaline not for spiritual enlightenment, for, but for artistic and philosophical experiments. In the 1890s, athletes and poets such as Havelock Ellis and W.B. Yeats W.B. Yeats experimented with it, looking at art objects and listening to music under the influence. In the 1930s, avant-garde artists painted on it, and psychiatrists gave it to intellectuals like Walter Benjamin and Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre had a very unpleasant experience, after which he believed he was being followed around by crabs that nobody else could see. Beat writers, including Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs, were early adopters of peyote. Ginsberg wrote that it was like telepathy, like electricity. And Burroughs fantasized that after eating it, he was turning into a plant. We turn green and no one can kick a chlorophyll habit. <laughs> the most enduring trip in this vein was Hunter S. Thompson's in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, in which his white-knuckle escapades are further amplified by the fearful intensity that comes at the peak of a mescaline seizure. <laughs> 
What impact did the doors of perception have on our perception of psychedelics? Before the doors of perception, most people, although Huxley included, thought of drugs as dope, of interest only to psychiatrists, bohemians, and criminals. Huxley presented mescaline as something different, connected both to ancient wisdom and to cutting-edge science. The term psychedelic freed it from its associations with psychiatry and mental illness and made it part of a new generation's quest for personal growth and spiritual illumination. You found that mescaline has a growing following for use in ceremonies. Why is this? The Native American church has undergone an expansion over recent years. It's now estimated to have at least 250,000 members across the U.S. and Canada. It spread rapidly through tribes where it used to be uncommon, such as the Navajo, where new religious movements such as evangelical and Pentecostal Christianity are also on the rise. The North American church, the Native American church offers a form of worship that keeps Native American cultural identity alive in the modern world. Its members are often very active in their communities in initiatives such as alcohol recovery programs. Among the Navajo, the mescaline ceremony has developed a powerful healing element and is often seen as being more effective than Western psychiatry in addressing problems of trauma and social dislocation. In the book, you describe the effects of the drug on yourself in an amazing setting. Can you explain what this felt like? Prior to writing the book, most of my experiences with mescaline was in the form of San Pedro cactus, which is the easiest to access and much more sustainably ecologically than peyote. I write a bit about a trip in Peru a few years ago. It's hard to describe what mescaline, quote, does, because it's a lot of contradictory sensations. On one hand, it's euphoric, visually rich and enchanted. On the other, it's quite physically uncomfortable and draining. People have very different experiences with it as a result. Although there are some pharmacological differences between San Pedro peyote and pure mescaline, I found they are all pretty similar in their effects. The physical weirdness isn't just side effects from the cactus. It's the same with the pure alcoholoid too. The big difference is in the context. When taking it on my own or in an experimental session, I found myself absorbed in the sensation and the visuals. When I took it in a Native American church ceremony in Oklahoma, it was all about the communal experience. What impact did mescaline have on the drug world and drug culture? By the time psychedelic drug culture kicked off in the 1960s, mescaline had almost been entirely replaced by LSD, which was massively more potent. A gram of mescaline is about three doses. A gram of acid is tens of thousands. But mescaline has had a massive, if indirect, impact on modern drug culture. After the chemist Alexander Shulgin's first mescaline trip in 1960, he resolved to discover other phenethylamines that might have similar effects. His search led him to synthesize MDMA, which by the 1970s had made its way from psychotherapy to the dance clubs of Texas, Chicago, and New York. Shogun synthesized dozens of variances, variants such as DOM, 
2CB and 2CT7, many of which share mescaline's more psychedelic properties. In a sense, all these new drugs can be seen as mescaline-tamed for the chemical generation, less trippy, but also more physically manageable and lasting three hours instead of a grueling 12. Today, pure mescaline has pretty much disappeared from everywhere but the recesses of the dark web. Mescaline-containing cacti, by, by contrast, are more widely used than ever before. Along with the growth of the Native American church, peyote is increasing, increasingly popular in Mexico for ceremonies and herbal remedies to the point where the ecology of the cactus is becoming threatened. The San Pedro cactus, though, grows abundantly across Peru, Ecuador, and Bolivia, and San Pedro shamans and healing ceremonies are spreading around the globe. So I'm 51 years old, and in the late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, chemically pure mescaline was really widely available, in, um, at least in the New York City area where I was growing up. And you could buy, I think, 100 uh, mescaline tablets for like $35. So they were, it was like a 35-cent um, dose of an amazing chemical that... Um, if you've never read the Doors of Perception, <laughs> it's, so I'm I'm curious that what happened to all the, um, the free mescaline that was all over the place, and that maybe it was all just coming from one place, and that one place stopped making it. So <laughs> but it, it's interesting that um, it doesn't seem to have more popularity than um, than it does, but perhaps it is the um, the, the sort of the, the range of feeling that it could become physically uncomfortable, but at the same time very highly, um, very ecstatic and beautiful. So, yeah, mescaline is uh, really an amazing substance and um, very... I, I had a friend, and she was older than me. She was, like, in her 50s, and... We were drink we were drinkers at the time. We were drinking alcohol, and we we consumed San Pedro cactus, and I immediately um, felt it and had twelve hours of fun. And she absolutely had no um, effect from it. But the following day, it was um, she. So I've never heard of that ever happening where someone consumed San Pedro and didn't feel anything, absolutely not nothing. And then the following day, it, it came on full, full force. <laughs> that is what, so I don't really, I don't understand how it could take that long to really kick in. <laughs> that within two hours, you really should be feeling the height of any mescaline journey. But I've never used peyote, so um, that's something that I been told that it's really um, ecologically threatened and people aren't really doing the plant any favors by um, purchasing it or um, just there's um, industries where they're just really over harvesting but there is ways that they're trying to be sustainable with um, peyote and um, yeah I've been 
they, they do replant it, but I think it takes five years to grow back. And that's a, a minimum of five years where some of these peyote vines that people are picking are, are like older than their grandparents. So, um, yeah, that's something that I'm kind of interested in because I, I think mescaline does not get enough credit as um, a really useful and awesome psychedelic. So I'm going to read more about, um, oh, I, okay, let's, I, um, I might have read this during, during our last show. Let's see. Okay, I'm going to read this article. This is from a recent uh, Mother Earth News and it's called Gardening to Treat the Mind, Body, and Soul. So this may be something I read on the last show, but I think it's still something that I think is really cool. We will most, mostly all agree that gardening is a great way to get some exercise, stretch some muscles, and enjoy some fresh air, healthy produce. But believe it or not, gardening can do much more for us than just that. Gardening has been linked to improved mental health, it can be calming and relaxing, allowing the brain to rest and recuperate. Studies have been, been made that show that an ability to calm dementia patients and those suffering from Alzheimer's disease. Patients with these issues have been shown a marked decrease in agitation and, and anxiety while gardening, with a lingering effect for some time afterwards. Many people relate gardening to a time in their lives when they, when they were with their parents and even grandparents, when things made sense and were safe and familiar. Gardening is an activity that they relate to enjoyment. Patients who have been subject to the impairments of dementia and dementia-related illnesses, whose brains are impaired in some way or means tend to go back to their basic instincts, childhood memories, and find comfort there in those familiar and safe environments of the garden. In a report made by CNN, people in their 60s and 70s that were studied over the past 16 years showed a 36 and 49 percent, respectively, lower risk of developing dementia and dementia-related illnesses than their non-gardening counterparts. Gardening has been shown to, to be a better stress reliever than reading. In a study conducted around 2014, one group of people were asked to participate in gardening activities for 30 minutes a day, while the other group was asked to read 30 minutes a day. The findings and conclusions were that the gardeners showed a marked improvement in overall mood than the readers, a much decreased level of stress than the readers, and much lower levels of the stress hormone cortisol in their system than the non-gardening readers. Not sure if this would include reading about gardening or leaving through seed catalogs. Grandma said every kid should eat a peck of dirt before they start school. Now, I'm not sure if this prescription is accurate, two gallons of soil, <laughs> but the idea is gaining exposure to the beneficial microbes that the soils provide and can benefit the gut chemistry in all of us. The beneficial microbe mentioned is Mycobacteria vecaceae. NV is a bacterium that is found in healthy soil and is both inhaled and ingested while gardening. 
The bacterium is said to provide the same effects on the neurons of the brain as the prescription drug Prozac. MV stimulates serotonin production in the brain and causes a feel-good reaction in us. The garden can really be your happy place. Studies have shown that when interviewing gardeners and non-gardeners, that 80% of the gardeners feel happy compared to only 67% of our non-gardening counterparts. Not to sound like an old hippie, which technically I could be, the thought of all this is not new to me. I remember a time when we talked of grounding. In effect, in effect, a movie was produced with that same title and dealt with this very topic. In the early 70s, Grounding or bonding with the earth has many benefits to our well-being, and all that we really need to do is keep our fingers dirty or touch the earth. Walking barefoot was said to transfer free electronics that are found in the earth's structure. Soils do have electrical charges. And these electrons then enter our bodies through our feet and then spread into our tissues. This action of grounding with the earth has been said to relieve pain, improve sleep, health, reduce inflammation, and provide an overall sense of well-being. This may seem a bit out, out of here for some of you, but hey, what's the harm? Why not try at least going barefoot and recharge your system? Well, I challenge you to think about just how beneficial gardening can be beyond just healthy foods, nutrient-rich produce, and try to engage in the mind-boosting activities and the beneficial microbes that are found in our garden. Oh, yeah, keep the, those things dirty. All right, I'm going to um, pause and close my window. Wow, so that was a really big wind gust. I'm on the west side of the Big Island, and I believe that was coming from the east. So I have this uh, weather app that I'm using now called SailDrone. So love to open that up and see what's going on with the, the, wind, the wind that's coming over the island today. So it's been about um, an hour and a half. I think I'm going to...
to end the show. Uh, I love doing it. So I'll be back at the beginning of September on the first Thursday of the month. If you're interested in listening to some of my past shows or listening to Susan Reed's show, the web address is blogtalkradio.com backslash Susan Weed and the entire feed with Susan's call-in show and my, pre- my past monthly shows is up on that address. I also put up a, a little slideshow on my show so you'd be able to see the slideshow of my pictures that I post for each show. So have a good, good month of August and I'll be doing another show, God willing or Goddess willing, in the beginning of September, first Thursday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern.